Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies, and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb. And this week is a bonus episode, or I guess this episode is a bonus episode. We'll have a, a real episode this week also, but we have a special guest today. And I just told Nick that I'm just going to butcher his name because he spelled it wrong. He spelled it how Brian would want to spell it, which is Nick Price. But unfortunately, I only did that one time. Come on, why am I getting railroaded right now? One Nick, time Nick you forget Prince. the guy's name. It, it was twice. It was twice. It was at least twice. All right, maybe it was twice actually. <laughs> you know, you know how I can confirm that that's true is because I played against or I sat across at the players' meeting from Nick Price from Europe, who gets very confused every time you mess up his name, mess up my name. Sorry, and he thinks like, wait, what did I do? Why are they talking to me? I didn't five of a league. <laughs> Just trying to keep Nick Price from Europe on his toes. Hello, Nick Price. I hope you're listening to this very special episode. I hope he is too. He was a really cool dude. Nick was good to hear. Prince. Prince Nick. All right. We, we've established that, right? We've got it out of the way. Nick, thank you for stopping by. We had a pretty good time hanging out in London, I would say. At least a, a more fun time, I think, than Mark Rosewater had when we were at dinner that one night. <laughs> Mark seemed like he had a lot of fun at various times and at other times looked like he was very like very confused how he got to be in this group of like CFB Europe employees and content creators at a pizza bus which is probably the strangest part of that is that we were on a bus and they made pizza. Yeah, and they were just like parked in a random parking lot and mm-hmm. People like Pleasant Kenobi were just yelling about anime, which if you've seen any of that nonsense on Twitter, that's where that comes from. So yeah, good times. Yeah, I never even got the anime thing. I just, I stayed over in my, on my half where I got to talk about real topics instead of like my macadamia or something. <laughs> that's that's uh, Brian's favorite. Yes, a huge my macadamia fan, correct. So Nick, who are you? For people who don't know, don't have a Twitter account somehow, have somehow never heard of you. Who are you? Like, what's your deal? Uh, So my name is Nick Prince. I am a grinder, I suppose, from Southern California. I've played Magic off and on for a long time, and I kind of just love all aspects of the game, and uh, from cosplay and uh, commander to competitive Magic, and I just give it my all and hope that I produce some good results occasionally and it worked so far i was at the mythic championship in london for pt guinea pig and it was a (laughs) lot of fun i had an absolute blast and i'm hoping to make it back to the pro tour i suppose so which aspects do you spend more time on or like which which is your actual favorite because i find it hard to believe that you like all of it equally so so I mentioned cosplay and like I've never actually done cosplay. I just love all the cosplayers, right? So like I enjoy the 
like how their relationship to the game and how much time and effort they put in and because that's just really cool right uh, i play competitive magic the most so i got into commander because all my friends here in los angeles who play magic play commander none of them are competitive players for the except for like one or two so uh, but that's how i can spend time with my friends and play the game i enjoy but mostly i just played lots and lots of magic online previously and now uh, arena <laughs> well at the end of the episode we're going to do a question and one of the questions that i am almost certainly not going to pick but i think is good enough that i should ask you now is from yo man five and he said how much do i need to pay you to cosplay tybalt and hearing you talk about the cosplayers and stuff like why why isn't that something that you participate in why why tybalt i don't know <laughs> if there's one color I am not, I don't feel like it's red. Like I'm, a, I'm a little bit of all colors. It's you know we got to represent a rainbow, but like I'm furthest from red. I think I have never cosplayed anyone, and Tybalt would be very difficult. And also, all the face paint would be kind of gross. That's why. That's why I haven't done Tybalt. I will probably be doing a cosplay of Tomic in Seattle though, because it's a fantastic idea that I was reached out to to do, and I don't have to create the outfit, and I will absolutely do it if I. If I'm given the chance. Okay. No, that's rad. I look forward to that. I'm going to be there. So mm-hmm. we'll have some good times. I'm sure maybe Brian will even be around playing in the tournaments. Uh, I likely will since it's next to my house and I'm out of excuses at that point to not show yes. up. <laughs> There's a good chance. I will in fact be at GP Seattle. I get what you're saying about the cosplay thing, Nick. I think it's very cool. I'm always in awe when I see it, but my complete and total lack of skill in that arena and just like, knowing that I could never do anything as good as what these amazingly talented people do completely prevents me from participating. But if someone were to show up and like, Hey, wear this costume, I'd be like, yeah, sure. That seems cool. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely do that too. I, I kind of have the the same thing where I don't like doing things that I'm bad at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it takes a long time to learn something, you know, that's just like months, maybe years of struggling and feeling completely inadequate. You know, like why, why wouldn't I just do things that I'm good at? Well, and it's, it's a long time to learn like a lot of the crafting skills that are needed for it. And like, I, I don't know about you all, but I already don't have enough time in my day. I don't know when I would find to actually just sit down and like pull out a sewing machine and like just trial and error to learn that skill. It's just too far gone for me at this point. I'm almost 30. I don't know that a little, it'll ever happen. Yeah, I'm in massive need myself of a hobby reduction. Like, I just have too many hobbies. I can't do them all already. If I were to pick up something else, it would be disastrous. Although I did, in just the last week, start playing piano. So I very clearly do not take my own advice, and uh, I will be doomed to repeat this horrible loop of not having enough time for the rest of my existence, I'm sure. You have a music background, though, right? So like, how much easier does that make it? It, it makes aspects of it easier for sure. Like it's definitely a different experience than someone who doesn't know music, but still it's an instrument that one of the struggles with it is I'm trying to do it properly. So like I can sit down at a piano and play by ear and like, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like I'm competent, but like make noise better than the average person who has no music background whatsoever. Right. But now I want to actually learn and read music properly and all that stuff. So it's definitely been a really fun experience, but it's not like I sat down and was a virtuoso. Like it's not that kind of situation. And you just have like pianos lying around. I, I bought a piano. Doesn't everyone? Yeah. Damn, dude. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Nick, with all of your friends doing commander stuff and I don't know, I, I think like most of the people that you hang out with at the grand prix and stuff, I would categorize as not super competitive. Like, 
what is it that actually makes you then focus on the competitive aspect instead of like being more casual like everyone else? Like obviously you're participating in everything, but like what what is driving you to do the com- competitive stuff? I mean, for me, it's I want to win. I've always been an incredibly competitive person, often to to like sort of detriment, I suppose, <laughs> when I was younger and much much more salty. <laughs> so, but that's been true no matter what what it was, whether it was like when when I broke my leg when I was sixteen, it was uh, RTS games, and when it was uh, when I was in college, it was various video games or um, you know Halo three and two and whatnot. I've always tried to be the best, and sometimes I'm I'm rarely actually the best, right? Nobody is, uh, in in or almost nobody is, but. I always want to get better and improve at things, which is part of why I find it hard to do anything half-heartedly. <laughs> so like, you know, if if we play a board game, right? Like I, I have a lot of board gaming friends here too. I, I don't like playing a game once because I will have fun with it, but I'll then want to play it again and say like, okay, I've learned this. I want to try and tweak this process until I feel like I've got a really good grasp on it. I want everyone else to do the same thing so that we together can kind of agree on how best to play this game and continue improving it. And I know a lot of the people I hang out with at, at Grand Prix don't necessarily have that, but I definitely do also have people that I talk to a lot, you know, like you and um, a lot of the SCG people and Jess Estefan and whatnot, where I'm doing that same thing in Magic. And that's kind of what how I approach games in general. And especially with Magic, there's this huge outlet and competitive circuit and whatnot that's always been present while I've played that I really leapt into pretty quickly, even after I started playing back in high school. I didn't see a ton of success pretty much ever until recently, but um, it was always something that I wanted to do, and I finally have time to to try and pursue it. So what do you think changed? There were two big things. One, I have the resources to do it, is kind of just an unpleasant reality of the game. It's expensive to travel around to Grand Prix and acquire all the cards and take time off of take time off of work or just take time off during your weekend to go play in a bunch of tournaments. Um, and for me, especially in Los Angeles, like that's, that was an option more recently. The second is that I took it more seriously, just in general. I always kind of thought that if I put as much time as I wanted to put in, that I would do a lot better. Whereas before I would, you know, um, I would know that a PTQ or whatever, a PPTQ or a Grand Prix was coming up and I would practice for the week leading up to it. Maybe I would play a lot more games than, than kind of normal. Now I'm kind of just always playing Magic and I, maybe it ebbs and flows how much, like I definitely played a lot more in April than I did in, I don't know, say uh, the month before after the RPTQ win. But I know that I will put in as much time as possible and I've never, I haven't taken like any extended break where I'm just not, I haven't touched a magic card or played a game of arena or magic online or whatever for like weeks at a time where that wasn't true previously. And so it was a combination of just like my life circumstances changing and then like how I approached the game. Do you think that that is something that could apply to everyone where it's like, you know, people maybe just aren't putting in enough time or spending their time wisely or, trying to improve either as much as you did or like going about it in the same way that you did? I definitely, it makes me wonder how much time people put in. I would not be surprised if, because there isn't like a set amount of time, right, that you put in like, or that you have to put in to be good at a magic tournament. Like you have to put in, if you put, if you 
practice for 30 hours leading up to a magic tournament that might be useful, might be not, people have will have very wild, wildly different definitions of what what a lot of time is, right? For maybe for somebody playing magic every night for a week before a Grand Prix is like a ton of time, right? If they're used to not playing that much magic or only going to FNM or whatever. Whereas somebody who plays a lot of magic or is playing like SCGs every week or something, like if you're just playing the week leading up to an event, that means that you're playing weekly. So maybe you're not even putting in that much more time than normal. Or if you're someone who puts in a ton of time before a tournament, like you're literally playing 16 hours a day, like that's a lot of time. And when all of these people then come together and say, oh, I played a ton of magic, they're not quantifying it, right? So the person who thinks that they played for the week before a big tournament is talking to the person who played for 16 hours a day for two weeks. They both just say the same thing and walk away thinking that they both played a lot, whereas one person actually played a ton more. So it's just a difference in how we communicate. And I wonder if that doesn't mean that a lot of people think that they're putting in a lot of time. And when in reality, there's, you know, there's the pro players who are putting in hours and hours and hours. And you see that or like the SAG players who are putting in dozens of hours every week who are actually putting in a ton more. But, but, you know, your average player just doesn't know that. And I think that that probably means that people should play more. And even just in general, I, I doubt that there's, for most players, that they're hitting like sort of the optimal amount of time for them that to, to learn a format. Well, it's, it's definitely not easy. I mean, it is the, the biggest limiting factor, I think, to a lot of people. But yeah, of course. For I mean, you personally, at, at what point do you feel like, you know, you're comfortable with the tournament? Certainly, <laughs> you can always be doing more and learning more things and everything. But like, is, is there ever a point where, you know, you, you just feel good going into something? No, uh, for me, no, I, I never feel like that. And part of that is just because I'm, pro- I'm a little bit of an anxious person anyway. I will always f- think like, well, what if I did more? What if I, what if I f- was more focused? What if I had spent less time on this devoted druid deck or whatever? Like, would I have done better <laughs> in the tournament? Right. I do eventually make peace with the fact that I, I've put in as much time as I did and we will see if it was enough. And even if it was enough, it's possible that I won't do as well as I want because that's just magic. Yeah, the best part for me, especially for the, the big tournaments, is when you have to submit your deck list online like a day or two in advance. And as soon as I hit send, I'm just done and I feel so relieved. Yeah, I mean, that was... Uh, I had resigned myself to just playing whatever list you sent me, to be honest, like two days before, where I was like, I feel like I've played so many games with humans over the last like week and a half or whatever that I'm almost just too in the weeds I need to just focus on limited because I think that that's where the edge is going to be. If Jerry tells me to register 75 cards of humans, I will be fine with it. If he makes me, if he tells me, like messages me the day before saying like, no, we got to switch over to mono red. I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. (laughs) So we'll just run whatever (laughs) 75 I play of humans I had last. But I had resigned myself a a few days before. So I, I didn't have quite that same experience that I've heard a few different times where it's like, you worry about all those small choices and then finally hit send and you're like, I, I'm done. I'm free. Whatever happens, happens. But I, un- I understand it for sure because sure. I definitely have, um, I definitely have that, pr- that night before moment every single time where I'm like, I'll either do well or I won't. And we'll find out tomorrow. Yep. Well, you should have told me that you're just going to play whatever I sent you because then I wouldn't have made such a bad deck list. 
I thought that deck list was great. Are you kidding? <laughs> we can talk about that later, but I loved that deck the entire weekend. All right. Well, I, that makes one of us. So let's <laughs> let's get into talking about London, I guess. Basically, like how how did you qualify and like leading up to, you know, the PPTQ season, the RPTQ, all of that stuff. Like, did you think that after playing Magic for so long that like, you know, you would be qualifying basically, I guess, this soon after taking it a little bit more seriously? No, I at some point I just expected to not make it again. I have taken it less seriously, but I certainly haven't. I've certainly been trying in some capacity for, you know, with with some small breaks and whatnot for like 10 years. So I was expecting to yet again fail just because that's kind of the nature of it, right? It's, it can be hard to, to win a PTQ or to win one tournament and then go to the next tournament and top eight that one also when there's been four months in between or whatever. Like none of these systems are terribly easy to qualify, especially if you've never been like done it before at least that's my that's kind of my opinion so the fact that i showed up to one pptq and qualified and just just took it down and then four months later i showed up to the only rptq i would ever get to play and top aided was not what i would have ever guessed uh how and I it was qualif- top eight qualified top four so i had to win my top or i had okay. to win the quarterfinal match so in both tournaments, I won with green-white tokens. So Zach Keeney might be the the current green-white champion, but I was definitely out there playing that deck much, much longer than anybody <laughs> any else bothered to, uh, since it only really saw widespread play that first week of Guilds of Ravnica standard. And you were doing it with like different builds, too. I know that you experimented a lot with the archetype, whereas Zach's list mostly stays the same. Like you could look at his list from uh, last week in Richmond and then look at the list from, I think like two sets ago at the Invitational and it's basically the same deck. Yeah. And if you look at it versus kind of what people played at the mythic championship in what was it? Cleveland, Cincinnati, somewhere in Ohio, they were all like very, very similar where it's four Sapperling migration four venerated Loxodon four conclave tribunal and just a lot of set numbers and i've never really understood that in that deck like i actually like one of the big ones i hate is conclave tribunal like the fourth copy is really bad sometimes you draw two early and you're like why why did i register four of this i i could never need more than one i usually just win before that or just die because i've drawn all these conclave tribunals and so i did play around a lot of it uh, a lot with the deck song of fraley's is the big one that i still haven't convinced <laughs> brian is a good is a good card, but I, I've got some time. It hasn't rotated. I, w- I want to believe you so badly, Nick. I, w- I want to believe it. that's a card that like is calling out to my heart. And every time I'm just like, nope, hate it. Get out of my deck. Well, so full disclosure, I am also at that same point, but that's because they printed the same card, but better in the last set called, or, uh, called Unbreakable Formation. And it mm. does everything that Song of Fraley's did, but you don't have to wait two turns for it. But I always thought you thought about that card wrong. It's not it's not Cryptolith Rights. It just it's unbreakable formation with suspend. That's an interesting way of approaching it. I wanted to use it as Cryptolith Rights. You wanted to use it as a glorious anthem. So Well, not just an anthem, but it's also it is a little bit of like kind of like that affinity style of play where you just like right. dump your hand on the board and then you have a thing that says, by the way, if you don't have an answer to it this turn, I win. Like I promise I win when I all my things are larger indestructible and vigilant and have trample or whatever it is whatever all the the abilities that card gives i forget 
Yeah, nobody even knows what that card does. It's just it, the game ends when it goes off. That's why. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. and I, I think I think your approach is certainly better than mine. Like just having this proactive plan and using cards like that to actually kill people rather than do you know whatever God knows what thing I was trying to do at the time. Yeah, and I mean the very first build of it, which I I five owed a league. I think just beforehand, and I was just locked in for the PPTQ, was the entire theory of the deck was just that it wanted to go two drop into turn three, Song of Fraley's two drop into turn four, like really anything. Just play as many things as you could before the song because you suddenly had access to seven and eight mana and then win the game. And that's how I won a lot of weird games at the pbtq and then other times they goblin chain whirled me and i didn't do anything and i just hoped <laughs> that like shalai would get there but thankfully they mostly did so how much of your success do you attribute to just playing what you know because selesnia has decent results generally in the hands of people who know the deck really well and have been playing it for a long time but i think is just undervalued in general and i think if you asked basically anyone going into the tournaments, like you want a classic, a PPTQ and an RPTQ, I don't think anyone would have said like, yeah, obviously Celestia is the deck to play. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely value to knowing a deck and being able to adjust it every single week. Cause if you, I mean like all three of those decks were different versions of the same idea. Like the first two were song of Fraley's. The last one wasn't, and there's been a bunch of other versions. Like I, there was a different 501 where I played what was essentially uh, BBD's later Green White Angels deck. I don't obviously think he took any inspiration from me, but it was the same idea. I think that there is a lot of value to knowing how to switch up your deck every every single week. You know, you see it on an SCG right now with Zach Allen, where it doesn't matter what the format is doing. He's showing up with Esper, and he's made. 10 different card choices than last week and he's continuing to just top eight every standard tournament he enters or modern tournament he enters i think that that's a really undervalued skill because if you read a lot of articles people are advocating you know this week was the simic nexus week but and or to be one step ahead of that you needed to be able to beat it and like now this is mono red's land and you need to switch to something that beats mono red it's hard for me to believe that switching a deck every single week is going to pan out perfectly because you or pan out as well as people advocate for it because switching decks both requires you to learn that deck well enough to be proficient with it and that you're always making the correct predictions and if you have that ability like yes you will do well but i don't think everyone does i think there's a weird dichotomy in the literature that complicates it because as content creators you're you're giving a snapshot of the moment in time right and you're 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 presented with a metagame as it is and you're supposed to say okay what's the right choice for this week and that's what all of us do over and over and over we're Mm -hmm. finding the right thing for this week and it's more about the thing than the ways to adapt to the other things do you know what i'm saying like it's really you're incentivized to more take broad shots than to say, okay, this isn't a great week for Simic Nexus, but if we do X and Y, then we have a chance this week. People don't want to have a chance. They don't want to have their you know, pet deck optimized. They want the solution. They want the clear slam dunk, going to win me this tournament advice. And we all try to give it. 
And I think something is lost in that. It's some of that small tweaks and knowing your deck really well inside and out. It's it's hard to write content in that fashion. And so the theory that you've taken gets obscured a little bit, but it's unquestionably a good one. Like you are proof of that. You found success just adapting this deck. And I'm sure there were times where you were like, man, this metagame is really hostile. Maybe it's time to put this down, but you persevered, stuck with it, and were ultimately rewarded. Like right now, like I wouldn't. God bless sure. like right now. I, I I would not touch. <laughs> I would not touch Celestia tokens with a ten foot pole. <laughs> like I just don't know what world we're in that Nexus Red and Esper Control is beatable for just like good old fair magic. Right, but there was Zach in the top eight this yeah. week, and you're like, "How are you there?" It yeah, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But apparently, yeah. Gideon Blackblade was just the solution to all three matchups. Who do? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I, it. I I will push back a little bit and say that like I, I you have you probably have more numbers and whatnot, but there are definitely people out there who just want to know the latest build to like the deck that they find fun and interesting and good. I still have people who message me like, "What would your build of Mardivas be?" And I'm like, oh, I don't know, man. <laughs> have you read Cry of the Cardarium? Like that card's just not beatable. But here's what I think: Soren's good. But like, and green white tokens is the same way. Where even when I hadn't played it for, you know, a couple months, and we were into the new standard, and I was on mono blue, I'd still have like, do you think you should play Unbreakable Formation? I'm like, yeah, I guess. Like, I don't know, I haven't tried it. Yeah, I I agree that that market is certainly there. I just think it's the difference between a, a focused market mm-hmm. and trying to write for everyone. Right? It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's great that you can directly target those people because they're reaching out to you and you're trying to hit a mass audience. I think the priorities have to be at least a little bit different. Not to say you can never take that approach. And certainly there are people who do, right? You think of hey, someone like Shaheen Merfolk. Sarani. There's yeah, the there's, there's Merfolk writers, there's Shaheen, and they just talk about the same thing over and over. And they, there's a market for it, for sure. I don't know. Maybe someday I'll, I'll find my niche and I'll be able to just talk about the same archetype over and over, just Simic. Simic Nexus over and over, week after week after Please week. Stop. Beat you over the head with Simic Nexus until you can't take it anymore. I, th- I thought that was your niche. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, maybe personally, but I don't. I try not to broadcast that too wide with my uh, my writing. That's it. Okay. Hey, you have an opening on the podcast. <laughs> I do. I do. Ooh. Where do I submit my resume? I think I have it on hand already. That's fair. It's just it's just Tristani and venerated Loxodon stapled to a piece of paper. <laughs> maybe maybe champion of the parish now. Ooh, champion of the parish was a good one. Well, all right. So you win this RPTQ, you qualify for London. At some point, uh, you knew it was modern already, correct? No, they were. Um, everyone was speculating that it would probably be modern, but they didn't announce okay. it for till like a week or two. So there was there was a nice like two weeks where I just got to like do whatever I wanted and play whatever I wanted because I didn't have to think about an upcoming event. So then information slowly comes out. They reveal that the MC is modern and then that the MC is pre-release weekend. And then uh, eventually a couple weeks before the tournament that there are open deck lists. And this is your first, you know, PT MC event. How, how does all of this make you feel? I mean, on one hand, it is very weird and strange because the tournament's going to be much different than it normally would be. But on the other hand, you're coming at this from the first time anyway. So like, did this affect you at all? I mean, at some point, it's like anything else. It doesn't matter if I want Nexus of Fate banned or whatnot. Like, I'm 
I'm given a format and I have to figure it out. And I, I accept that. But it was, I mean, it definitely was frustrating. There was a moment where I think it was after the open deck list where I was just like, why? Why can't I just have a normal tournament? Like I've played <laughs> literally hundreds of magic tournaments. Why are they making every single aspect of this one so weird? And it was very frustrating. There was one day where I was just super annoyed and salty about it. And then I was just like, all right, back to work, I guess. The pre-release thing was the part that scared me the most. I am not naturally a limited player, although I've played lots of limited. It's not something that I consider myself like amazing at or whatnot. I think I'm an okay drafter and I will navigate a game of limited as best as I can, but I don't jam thousands of games of it like other people do. The fact that it was modern was frustrating insofar only as I don't like modern very much right now. I used to love modern quite a bit when I got to play like fair faithless looting and inquisition of Gozelec decks. That that was great. Hell yeah. <laughs> but that just hasn't been modern for about a year now. The open deck list part was the one that really threw me for the biggest loop because I've just never had to deal with that. I've never top aided an SCG or anything like that where even like even just a few of my opponents get to know exactly what I'm on. So that one, I didn't know how it would play out, but thankfully, Meddling Mage is a hell of a card, and I got to, <laughs> I got the better end of that deal. So I enjoyed that quite a bit. Hell yeah. So going into this tournament, did you have any goals? Like, are you trying to re-qualify? Are you trying to day two? Like, what what is your mindset coming in? So I had like tiers of goals in my mind and I would just like slowly check them off and then move on to the next one throughout the weekend. The first was not embarrass myself. And there was a minute where that looked like it might not happen (laughs) (laughs) when I started 0-2 and and I, the second loss was totally just, just my fault. Uh, I, I made a number of small mistakes, admittedly because one of our cards was apparently wrong when we proxied the cube, I think. And the other was just because planeswalkers have six billion static and triggered abilities now for some reason and it just made for very complex board states but so that was my first goal was just don't embarrass myself i eventually won a bunch of matches and i got to uh i got to three and four my second goal was to day two i won my last match against uh amulet titan uh with humans to go four and four and just barely squeak into uh, day two my next goal was to 3-0 the draft because i actually felt really strongly that my draft deck on day one was quite good and I wanted to redeem myself. And I checked that box off when I 3 0 against just one of the most absurd opponents ever with multiple gods in red-black. <laughs> My last goal was to re-qualify, and that was where I finally fell short. <laughs> uh, I lost the very last round to go 10-6. and six, So, But there was a long time where that dream was, sudden, was alive, and going into the last round, I was very happy to even be in that position after starting 4-4. Four and four. Yeah, I mean, even after starting 0-2. Yeah, that's also true. I, I started 0-2 and, and ended up 1-5, I think, so, you know. You had good company, though, and the, there were a lot of people who, who didn't do as great at this Pro Tour that you would be a little surprised at, but Modern is fickle, and so is a draft format that nobody actually got to play. Yeah, tell me about it. I <laughs> found that out firsthand. Well, how is, how is the experience overall? Uh, we talked about, you know, the I guess the new mulligan rule was, like, another thing, and, yeah, open deck lists, pre-release limited, all that good stuff. How how did that compare? Like, did you think that playing in a pro tour type event would be like that? Like, was it everything you hoped for? I guess. No, I would kind of like to play like a regular Magic game <laughs> in a pro tour yeah. at some point. Like, it's it's hard to understate. Like, it obviously was still Magic, but it it was it wasn't modern and it wasn't 
a regular tournament by any stretch just because like even removing the pre-release part which i have my own conspiracy theories about some sort of product delay on that because that's the only way that makes sense to me but like even just playing the modern games like nobody should look at those deck lists that were registered and think yeah i should copy this for card for card when you were building for a format where your opponent got to see exactly what you were registering well how do you think it changed things i mean the biggest i mean personally like meddling mage is an absolutely absurd card when you know exactly the options that you have to name like you can very easily construct like okay how do i how does my house of cards fall apart in a regular game of magic and kind of guess around it like which cards you need to play around um, based on what you've seen and what they normally play but it's an entirely different thing when you get handed the amulet titan list and see that they don't actually have path to exile in the deck they only have dismember and engineered explosives it's like oh these are literally the only ways i can lose my meddling mage lock on them those are the only ones i'll name whereas in a normal game of magic in like a game of magic you will guess that because they have syrup visions that they have x y and z cards maybe they have hive mind main or whatever but there's just no guesswork anymore that changes how that card plays specifically 100 percent. what about the sideboard stuff where <laughs> you got to see the cards that your opponent had in the sideboard but not the quantity um, I mean, you could still make like relatively good educated guesses, like a Leyline of the Void or whatever is probably a four of, because who would register one Leyline? A lot of it, for me, was less relevant because so many of the cards that matter in Modern are Silver Bullets, so it just doesn't matter to me how many Stony Silence or Leylines or Rest in Peace they have. All that matters is what removal they have, and I could just more or less memorize like three cards out of the sideboard and then just look for the relevant things in the main deck. It really benefited me being able to play in that sort of a way because that that is plays to my strengths of attacking and figuring out how I'm going to lose from there rather than trying to figure out like a control strategy or something where I need to both react to what they're doing and figure out potential ways I can lose, lose down the line. Well, we registered uh, one copy of Chalice of the Void and... Uh, I made the decision to do that basically because I was not happy with Chalice. Like if, if the open deck list thing didn't exist, I would have played zero copies. But since it's like, okay, yeah, you get to see my list. And we had a bunch of like one and two ofs and stuff. So it was it was fairly well disguised. And I think that with Dylan Hands championing Chalice of the Void and, you know, someone got second in Calgary, I forget the name, with three chalices it was like a pretty common thing, right? So I think people saw Chalice, they expected you to have three. And I I think it was kind of funny, both because BBD did the same thing. He also registered one Chalice for the same reasons. And then uh, I don't know if you read his tournament report or not, but he lost a game because he had Chalice of the Void. His opponent brought in Ancient Grudge. He kept a one lander with a, a vial. His opponent grudged his vial and he just lost. That's actually really funny i hadn't read his tournament report yet uh, i'm i'm really backlogged on magic articles after not sleeping for two the last two weeks basically okay but yeah i mean i, I didn't want to take credit for the chalice thing because it's to- that was i thought that was brilliant as soon as you sent me that list i got it i looked at one chalice and it was like why on earth would you do this oh right got it it's hard to quantify how much that helped me but i did get the theory behind it and i hope that like my blue red phoenix opponent played around it all game trying to you know vomit out any one mana spells before he got locked out of it or make sure to keep an abrade in hand or something 
so that he didn't just get locked out of the game. But I, I just have no idea. I did think that that yeah. was very smart of you. So props to you. Hell yeah. I, I do what I can, man. I have my moments. Well, thank you. Cause you provided, I still say that deck list. I don't know. What didn't you like about the deck? No, the deck was fine. I didn't like the fact that I lost. Oh, well, sure. But like, I, I only, I only played three rounds and my rounds were, uh, beat Esper control. And then I lost. Well, first, no, I think that might've been round two, maybe whatever. But one of the rounds I played against Phoenix, I lost the die roll. He had two Phoenixes attacking me on turn two and I had turned two Thalia. So like, if I go first, he can't make that sequence and, uh, end up just losing after that. I think like being on the draw again, game three mattered a decent amount. And then, uh, the next round I played against blue white control. They won the die roll. I played champion, champion, noble and got terminist. So that was basically <laughs> oh. my tournament. Yeah. That's not the deckless fault. That's not humans fault. And, I, I think in testing, I managed to dodge those scenarios pretty well. Uh, and then just when it came time for the actual tournament, like I was the person who was on the bad end of it, you know, but like humans did really well. Obviously, it put three copies in top eight, won the tournament, and had a good win percentage and all that. So I think the deck choice was right. I think we played three deputies main deck. I think that's pretty good. I would want at least two, if not the third. And I think the sideboard was fine for the tournament. And yeah, just didn't really get a chance to play a lot of rounds. That's all. That's fair. Okay. Yeah, that I, I especially like the deputies all weekend. I liked them the week going up to the or like leading up to the event, and then that's another part of open decklist that was really important is knowing what you need to save deputy for and when you don't need to save it. Also came up a couple times. I couldn't tell you specifically why, but there were a few different times where that was really important. I think War Prison was one of them where I knew exactly what removal he could play around or what I could had to play around, and that there was no good main deck way if EE was named to... There was no like uh, like one of Dismember or something hiding out in his deck that could undo Deputy, so I could just fire them off constantly and not worry about it. Yeah, that's pretty nice. Yeah, Deputy was great. And just having more access to more copies of them was, was amazing all weekend, because they're so rarely bad in Modern, except against, like I guess, kind of combo decks. Yeah, but even then, you play against like Ad Nauseam or something, they have a random Pentad Prism or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like, so, so few people are actually without permanence. And I, I think Deputy's great because before you had to play like Reclamation Sage and just like these garbage cards mm-hmm. so that you could kill an Ensnaring Bridge somehow. And now you have a card that actually gives you a lot of play in mirror matches or against like other creature decks. And you just have this main deckable out to a bunch of random nonsense. So, I think it made the deck a lot better. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I remember back in Guilds of Ravnica when everyone was so excited about Knight of Autumn and humans, and now it's just not even a relevant card. People still play because, it though. I don't get it. Yeah, well, people like playing a two-one that gains four life. I don't know. Uh, how did you feel? How did you feel about no Oriok champions? Uh, I never cared. At least maybe that was just the matchups that I hit, but it doesn't feel like it does that much to me. Like, I guess if I had played against Grixis Death Shadow, it would have been pretty good. But other than that, like, you can just race burn and they can and they have plenty of ways to stop pro red creatures. It's not like this is the first pro red creature they've ever had to beat in modern. And other than that, like, I don't think it's that impactful in the mirror. I guess it's technically a card you can bring in that does something, though. Yeah, I I never did that. I never liked it. I'd rather just have the 2-2 for middling mage and make it like a 3-3 with champion rather than just or a lieutenant rather 
rather than have like the Oriok champion that's a one one becomes a two two. You know, it's like the the body is just so not relevant. Right. Exactly. I don't. I don't get it. You need to actually win the game against most of these decks, and a one one just is not going to get there. Yeah, that was the one thing that I was kind of worried about as far as having someone else play my deck kind of blind where everyone is so high on Oriok champion. I think it just doesn't do anything. Like obviously it helps against dredge, but I don't think you necessarily need the help. And I played several games against death shadow leading up to the tournament where I played a champion and still lost, you know, it's like, it's not as impactful as any of the other things that you could be doing in the matchup. And then yeah, burn. I just didn't expect anyone to play. So. Well, and I was especially like, I saw it, I saw it in play a, a few different times, both like because um, I was in the the house I was in with like Andrew Ellabogan and stuff. They had we had a couple human uh, humans players. I watched it a couple times at the Mythic Championship. They still lost. They still lost those matchups sometimes. Like it's not like this card was so good somehow against the matchups where it was good that it it turned thing around turned things around. It was often just annoying more than anything. It just doesn't it doesn't pressure them enough to actually do what you want. So you went 10, six overall four two unlimited. So that leaves you at six, four and constructed. Yep. I had a, a real nice 60 to 66% win rate, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. I was going to say, I was pretty, I was pretty happy about that. Like my, my number one goal was just not to embarrass myself and prove kind of, kind of validate myself after so long of doing this, that, that I actually could hang. And I think I did that at least decently. Like I made, I made some mistakes. I definitely made mistakes, oh, but of course. I, I played at a level that was at least reasonable. There's this weird, there's this weird thing where people don't, no matter how much you tell them they belong, they never accept it until they actually get the chance to stand up there and swing. Right. And like, see what it's like. And just in speaking with you, I could have told you, you absolutely could hang. You weren't going to embarrass yourself. And it, it's funny, too, because you could have gone there despite all of this, despite the fact that I know that you were capable of hanging and this was an event that you definitely deserve to be at and deserve success at. You still could have went 0506 pretty easily, right? Like, that's just the yep. way magic is. And then you'd be sitting here thinking, oh, man, I embarrassed myself. I'm not I'm not worth anything mm-hmm. as a magic player. And none of that would be true. But still, you just be it's able true. to internalize it that way. Oh, and I kept, and I told myself that too. Yeah. Yeah. You- I, t- I told myself over and over that like, you know, it doesn't matter if you owe through your draft pod and then O2, like there will be other people, there will be other pros who do that. No LSV's done it. Other people at the tournament didn't have good results either. Yeah. I had a good Jerry friend. One five. Right. I had a good friend who just recently played his first pro tour and, uh, at O and seven got paired against Shahar. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. see, like it, it's not you. It just happens sometimes. And, you know, even the best players just don't have it some days. Why was Shahar playing at 07? I don't know. That is a fair question, Jerry, and one I cannot answer for you. Maybe it was at the 06 match, but it was certainly very, very far out of contention and <laughs> was still playing. He just wants to keep playing the game, man. He just loves it. I guess so. I guess so. I don't get I don't get that feeling from Shahar, but Oh, well. I would have played all eight rounds. If I had, if I was 0 and 7, oh, wait, I would have played it, no, the wait, last it's, round. No, it's, wait, it's at 0 6. It's at 0 6 because he actually got a buy in his last round okay. and finished 1 7. Aww. So it was, it was the 0 6 match. I, that would make me salty. Yeah. If I was 0 and 7, I would, and I had like one more chance to just win a match at the Pro Tour. Right. And, and then we get it. I got the buy. I would be, I would be so upset. I'd be like, someone fight me right now. Yeah. <laughs> not great. Well, I, one of the things. Uh, about this whole conversation that I, I really dislike 
and Brian, you kind of touched on this, is that if you're good enough to qualify for a PT, you definitely belong. And it would not surprise me if basically any random person in the tournament can make day two or three O draft pod or, you know, X six X five requalify again. Like all, all the players there are good enough to do that sort of stuff. And the thing that sucks is the, the system I think is kind of bad to the point where a lot of people don't get that chance. And I'm not sure really who to, who to blame in all this, you know, like maybe there are too many people who, or like gold or silver or whatever, like taking up those invites, or maybe the system just needs to be reworked. So the, the PTs are like 800 person tournaments instead of 400 people or whatever. I don't know. But the, the fact that you've been playing for like 10 years, you qualify for the first time and you go 10 and six, it's like, yeah, obviously you should have just been playing in pro tours like the whole time, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe <laughs> like maybe I should have only been playing them recently because I certainly have. I certainly can tell you that I've been taking the game more seriously and putting in more time recently. Yeah. I think there is a definite correlation there. Sure. And but- like, I do definitely get what you're saying that, you know, it should be obvious that anyone who qualifies deserves to be there. I mean, what other way can you deserve to be there? But you've done the prerequisites, right? Like if you'd got there, you got there. That's the only it's the only way to do it. Right. I, there was a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, like full disclosure, that both the SCG win and the RPTQ top eight were both, I just barely made it. And I then obviously I do very well, apparently, when my back is against the wall, because both times I got in on, you know, under basically just getting really lucky that someone who was X2 could still top eight and then did very well from there, which I couldn't do if I wasn't playing at least well enough right to get lucky but it didn't feel like i had it didn't quite feel like i'd earned it in the same way that somebody who just wins in a more conventional fashion does right like not everybody has a lot of people who top eight top eight by going x and one or x one one or whatever right like i always x two got lucky somehow with tiebreakers and then showed up and did well from there so i wanted to prove that i could actually like just play the game at a high enough level and that was a little bit that was a personal thing and i don't think that uh, I don't think that it's the right mindset, but it was definitely one that I had going into it, right or wrong. Well, it is hard to qualify, and you know the the PT itself is difficult. And going ten and six, like you know, sixty six percent win rate, sixty three percent, whatever you want to put it at. I, I hope that that gets the chip off your shoulder. It did. Good. I obviously, <laughs> you know, you you could you could argue it the other way too, where it's like if you go oh five, like you know, maybe it's just variance or if you go 10, six, maybe it's variance, but like, I don't, I don't think you, you go 10 and six and you know, you, you don't deserve to be there or that your previous, you know, wins were a fluke or whatever. It's like it, if anything, it should validate all that stuff. Yeah, of course. I mean, every opponent at the pro tour is capable of playing a game beyond level zero. I mean, maybe there's some exception to that, but who cares? right? Like everybody is thinking about what you are going to do and trying to play around that. And they're not thinking about just the exact turn that they're in, but how do I craft a game plan and whatnot? Like nobody is playing their first draft like level or their first game of magic level or anything like that. They're all better than your average FNM player or whatnot. And so even if you do get lucky and some of magic is just always going to be that, you also have to do well every round 
too and continue getting lucky you have to put yourself in a position that getting lucky is even possible right which i don't think most players can do there there was a person who played their first ever draft on day two <laughs> i i played against that person <laughs> okay there you go that's you're the one who i heard it from so yeah they, they like slept in missed their draft still 4-1 to modern and got to draft actually missed, so 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 to marcel's credit he missed uh there was flight problems so he actually was able to land and get to the tournament before the draft had ended, but after the draft had started. Okay. Right. So, and then four one modern. So he knew what he was doing with ad nauseum and you know, props to him. He's clearly a good modern player, even if he had never drafted before. And I feel like that is a situation that could really have only happened at this pro tour where we were doing a pre-release because any other format, you could have at least like fired up arena or magic online and played yeah. a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, that's wild. Well, how how was the atmosphere? How did it compare to, you know, like playing in a Grand Prix or playing in an SCG event? I mean, should I ruin the mystique and just yes. admit that it was the same as every other Magic tournament, at least in terms of like atmosphere? It was just with like all the people that write articles. <laughs> so that, that was the only difference. Didn't feel any any different. Well, that that must have helped, right? Makes you feel comfortable, probably. Yeah, I mean, that definitely helps, like, knowing that there isn't going to be anything, like, truly out of the ordinary. I'm not, there's not, like, a, we're not playing in a stadium while people watch or anything weird. Like, it's just another convention center hall. But also, it kind of ruined the, it kind of ruined that aspect, I suppose. Like, it really is just, you know, the the tables are nicer, the chairs are nicer, and it's roped off. But it's still just folding chairs and folding <laughs> tables <laughs> made to look a little bit nicer. Well, I, I think stuff like that, like ruining the mystique is completely fine and acceptable because if anything, it should just normalize the experience for a lot of people, like the people who think that they don't deserve to be there. But yeah, once once you get there and, you know, it is just another tournament, you are just playing magic. It is the same as anywhere else. I I do think like, you know, you have a little bit more space than a Grand Prix, than your average Grand Prix at least. And that is nice. But other than that, it is it is the same. Yeah, that that is very true. All right. So what what is going on with you currently? When's when's like your next event? What are you planning to do for magic? And also kind of curious what you're planning to do for life, because I feel like those two two things are intertwined, you know, based on the whole time conversation we've had. That's true. That's a I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that one first because I just need to get that out of the way and say I don't know. And if I knew what I was trying to do with my life, then Maybe I'd be spending time on that instead of <laughs> instead of playing Magic so much. I have no idea. I know that I'm not particularly in love with my job or anything like that, but have never really figured out what I would rather be doing instead. As far as what's going to happen with Magic going forward, first and foremost, weirdly, I just found out today that I didn't know that the like the Pro Tour Planeswalker points don't count towards your season or whatever mm. or, like for the last year, and so I didn't play. I mean, I've never played a ton of Paper Magic in Los Angeles, but there's a few reasons for that. But because I really didn't do much leading up to the Pro Tour other than play online and try and do proxy drafts and stuff like that, I'm actually short of two buys by like 100 points. So I have to go to FNMs and stuff. It's going to be a little bit of a trip <laughs> since I haven't gone to an FNM in five years. It, only 100 points. It shouldn't take you that long, though, right? Well, yeah. I mean, like if you assume like 10 to 20 points or whatever and i think i have an mcq on the very last day so that can that can make up plenty of those points but i still need to actually 
do like some weekly drafts and show up to FNM and draft War of the Spark and whatever. So that's my kind of the immediate goal for the next couple of weeks. Then um, Southern California's MCQs are all at the end of the month. So I'll be attending all three of those, uh, assuming that I'm not qualified for the, th- you know, the second and third one, I guess. Uh, that includes hey, the... Hey, Nick, can I, ask, can I ask you a question? Sure. Do you know the thresholds for buys with Planeswalker points? <laughs> uh, I know that two is twenty two fifty. I couldn't tell you. All what. right, let's not worry about two. Let's let's worry about one presently. It's like thirteen hundred or fourteen hundred or something. Oh, cool! So I'm going to have zero buys coming into this year. That should be that cool. should be sweet. Can't yeah, wait see, for that. See, that's what I wanted to avoid. I dealt with zero buys. I never want to deal with zero buys again. It's tough. I I think the GPI top eight and I had zero buys. Oh. But yeah, that came off of like I was used to having the ratings based buys. So I always had two. Sometimes I had three. And then they're just like, nope, buys are just completely based on how much you play. And since then, there's only been once I've had two buys. And that was uh, when they used to give you points for PTQ wins. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Ever since they took that away, I just have not had two buys under the system. And it has been brutal. Jerry, you were there the last time I had zero buys in phoenix when modern and i played blue white ojutai and the very first round my opponent plays a hedron crab and i was like i could not possibly win yep. this match game over <laughs> my opponent woke up at 4 a.m and decided to reg- and to drive four hours to register hedron crab and props to him because he got the matchup he wanted i couldn't cryptic command the deck is never gonna win yo mill's not that bad mill gets a bad rap no mill was much worse a year and a half ago though yes that is accurate so it was it was certainly not what I was expecting. I didn't play against anything I expected that week. And I had just done really well with that deck on, on Moto. Yeah, playing against like quote unquote real decks, you play matchups that you expect and prepare for, and then uh you show up to a GP with zero buys and it's the Wild West. It really is. I played against that and like the red green Eldrazi deck and just a bunch of nonsense. It was rough. I was gonna say you could argue that maybe I should have played not Ojutai, but <laughs> You know. I, I think that deck was okay for that event, but it was okay the week before. Sure. It was probably the wrong call. I should have just been on humans. I should really just always have been on humans, but for some reason I hadn't decided I liked attacking with creatures yet. Mm. Well, now you know. Uh, so what, what formats are the MCQs you're playing in? Standard. Are all they, standard. They're just all standard. Is that like a season mm-hmm. thing? I haven't even looked into it yet. I think so. I don't think there are any more limited PTQs. Yeah, as, as far as I know, they're all standard. Yeah, a lot of the Los Angeles players, I think, were grumbling about that there are no more limited PTQs because limited PPTQs were very popular, like way more popular than the constructed ones. So I think it was actually harder to qualify if you were a limited player here in LA. Oh, wild. Limited PPTQs would get like 60 players and a standard one this, like the next week would get 20. Well, what is what is your plan? What's your preparation? Are you playing already? Or are you just expecting there to be you know, more results to go off of and everything. Well, I was waiting. I was playing last week, played Esper Hero. I feel like I was pretty vindicated in that choice, at least in how well BBD did. uh, For now, I need to just actually start playing everything. I was waiting to see how week one standard kind of looked, in large part because I think it's the only standard tournament that's getting any coverage other than like the, the Wednesday fandom things. Everything else is modern for the next few weeks and possibly for like Intel Modern Horizons and stuff like that. So my preparation is going to be playing probably fair 
mid-range decks with Teferi Time Reveler, Time Raveler, Reveler, Raveler, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Why Raveler? Oh, like on on Raveler? I don't know. Like he puts time back together. I guess. I don't know, man. It doesn't even make sense to me. Well, I got a dope Esper Hero list for you. That is my deck of choice currently, and I think it's busted. I just want to report that our good friends at Mox Insights have an article coming out. And they were talking over in the Game Podcast Discord, specifically Matt Nelson, and he said, the only thing I can say authoritatively from the data is that there's one deck nobody should play, and it's Esper Hero. I don't know what that means, but I'm just letting you guys know that that was the report from Mox Insights. No. So we're going to see what uh, what's going on there. What See, that's the problem with people collecting all this data, right? Is that they need to know how to interpret the data. Saying this deck is bad based on like a 40% win rate is not good because people are playing bad versions of the deck. That's what matters. That's entirely true. And I haven't seen the data. I don't know how they interpreted the data. I don't know anything about it. I've, all I'm doing, and actually, I think Esper Hero is interesting for this week. So it's not even that I disagree with you. I'm just reporting the information as I heard it. I think it's straight busted. I think it is the exact same deck as Green White Tokens. Not not Nick Green White Tokens, but like the one with like Gideon and Nissa and stuff, where it is just all about traction, accruing small advantages, eventually burying your opponent. That's what Esper Hero should be doing. And I think that people are both building it and playing it wrong. How are you a better mid-range deck than the Bant deck, if I can ask? Well, you you just dominate them straight up. How? Because you have a bunch of like dope cards that actually interact with them instead of like Jade Light Ranger or whatever. Well, yeah, but eventually they just play Oketra, and don't you? And like, isn't that just like the saddest time? No, because it so it's it's like a five mana play that they're playing into like both of your Teferis. Like any removal spell is fine, even like Tyrant scorning it is fine. Like, yeah, that's fair. You know, bouncing bouncing Oketra is pretty nice. I will say, like, I was whose article? I think it was Ari's article, and like I've seen a couple other people saying like Little Teferi is just not that good. And I'm like, have you have you all played this card? This card is sick. <laughs> it is pretty nice. Uh, it, like I, I looked at it just kind of like a repulse with a rider, but like the, the text is super relevant in a lot of different matchups and it just sits there a lot of the time and gives you a second repulse later on, which is just super sick for three mana. It's just like the best investment you could make. All three abilities are very relevant, rarely at the same time, but it's just like even the plus one ability with thought erasure is just silly. Yeah. And those cards, like the fact that it's a bounce spell <laughs> within a deck that has thought erasure is already very good. You didn't even need to make that, like that interaction much better to, to make the card great. Yeah. So I, I'm probably going to write about it this week. I know that uh, Ross is also writing an article, so I have to do something a little bit different than him, which I think I can handle. And plus his deck had like discovery dispersal and Seraph of the scales in it. So I had still had one of those as a holdover. Like I heard so bad. I know to, to we, be fair. Ross's article is out now. And okay. Lesson one in his article is Seraph of the scales is not a playable magic card. So no, Ross Seraph has now so come bad. to that conclusion as well. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how people have been tricking themselves into registering that one for a while now, well, especially in a world with Teferi. I put it yep. in in the first list in my article, and, and Nick, you you kind of yelled at me for this. Uh, but since I wrote that article, like there were so many powerful gold cards that were spoiled, right? 
So, like, yeah, you just don't have to play these bad cards anymore. You have, like, Sorin, uh, Dovin's Veto, D-Spark, Teferi. You could play Narset if you want. Like, you just have infinite busted cards at every point on the curve. So, you don't have to play Seraph anymore. Can we talk about Narset for a second? I've seen sure. multiple takes that's just, like, Narset is better than Little Teferi. And, like, everyone should be playing it. And I don't get that. Like, I think that it's a good card. They're different cards. For they sure. are different they're, cards. They're very different. And I, I, I think that... Teferi probably has broader applications, but maybe in its role, Narset shines a little bit more, if that makes sense. Like, Narset's so good. I, I actually think the identity of things like Demir, which Jerry and I both spent a lot of time on, and I don't think we ever were completely thrilled, even though we were both were winning, which was a weird experience. Um, but but I think Narset actually does a really good job of actually giving that deck some identity of just being, like, the good Narset deck. While as Teferi is just, like, good and everything it kind of just changes the terms of engagement of every single game you play once teferi's on the battlefield yeah plus plus you spend time playing the the various demir decks and then you play esper hero and it's like oh god like (laughs) this deck is just so much better at doing what the demir deck was and i think a lot of people just have this bad opinion of Esper Hero, like trying it after Wyatt top aided, you know, and then it's just like, oh, this deck has some really big problems. And a lot of them were the fact that you had to play so many bad cards just to make Hero good and so on. And now you just don't have to do that. All the cards are great. No, Hero is literally just like this card you get to play in addition to all the other cards you want to cast. Anyway. Right. You don't yeah. have to do much work for it at all. Yep. All right, Nick, lock it in. Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, that's one. I I am looking at Bant and Esper currently. I haven't actually played a single game with the Bant deck because I love the Esper deck, but those are, like, I'm happy to lock it in. Sure, let's do it. Last time, The last time I listened to you and copied your exact list, I did decently, so why not? Six and four? That's not a good record, Nick. No, but, I mean, presumably my opponents won't be all pro tour caliber. Only a few of them will be, so... Fair enough. And I think this deck also has a lot more play to it, too. So That's also true. I mean, humans is pretty straightforward. It's, you don't even have to guess or know other people's deck lists. They told me what I had to play around right before the match started, so how could I mess it up? Yeah. Well, anything else we want to add, gentlemen? No, that's... I'm good. Yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think we have delved into who Nick is as a person. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us, Nick. And uh, I've also appreciated getting to know you over the past few months. It's been good. I think you have a good magic head on your shoulders and are definitely equipped to be uh, as much of a wizard as you want to be going forward, which is always the question, right? How much of a wizard exactly do I want to be? Yeah, it's true. I still struggle with that question. We'll all figure it out someday. We'll get the exact right amount of wizarding in our lives. I want to be 42% wizard. Right. <laughs> I just Somewhere I just embraced there. it. I I don't know. Just at some point, I was like, "All right, I'm all in." Hundred percent wizard. I'm in. <laughs> I am I am mono wizard. I will completely lack any other sort of skill necessary to succeed in real life. But damn it, I'm gonna be a wizard. Well, whatever. You have plenty of skills, and, and they all stem from wizarding. I can't play the piano, Nick. <laughs> I just can't. Well, well, who among us could do that? That's that's an insurmountable feat for us at this at our old ages. Oh yeah, every one of you idiots could play the piano if you wanted to. It's not like it's a superpower. I'm convinced it's a superpower. I'm not a very coordinated person, though. I don't know. I, it feels like anything else to some extent, right? You just have to like. Are there di- people who are going to have different amounts of access to it? A hundred percent. But like, 
hard work overcomes a lot, right? And I, I think like we see that repeatedly in the magic world of people who just like work their way up diligently and are just committed to the game. And maybe they don't have that. Jerry and I all often talk about the savants, the people who just know the game almost intuitively. You know, they're missing some of that, but they just learn and consume content and work and work and work. And then they get to this place where they're incredibly talented players. I think that applies to all things. And maybe that's like the actual best lesson you can take away from magic when you see those kind of successes and not only like personal successes, but community successes and like what being involved with a community that's dedicated to helping you improve. Those are really like the life lessons you can pull from magic that I think are super impactful. Yeah, absolutely. But you also just learn like very, you you learn critical thinking you learn writing mm-hmm. in sure. Jerry's case, right? Like Jerry could go be a writer for anywhere. He could be an analyst. Jerry has plenty of skills that he is not, not fully uh, embracing yeah. or at least in non-magic context. I don't know. I think my writing's pretty bad, but whatever. Oh, whatever. You'd crush it. Get out of here. All right. You want to, you want to do a question? Sure. All right. So I like the question from Matthew Nickel who asks, what were some things you wish you knew before the event? Obviously referring to MC London. Could be format-wise, could be how to beat jet lag, although maybe you haven't figured that one out yet. So I told I told my parents that I'm going to play in another in tournaments to try and qualify for Barcelona, and they're like, oh, we'd be so happy for you. That'd be really cool. You, get to, you suddenly just get to fly around the world. And I was like, I'll be honest, I'm a little less excited now for Barcelona than Richmond somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I've been so dead for two weeks. That definitely would have been something that I would love to know about is how to beat jet lag because I still haven't solved it. And I thought I did all the things right, too. I wasn't doing anything dumb like falling asleep in the middle of the day. And then I came back and did that and it, it didn't help either. Uh, I do. I do all of the terrible stuff all the time. Well, yeah, but you just drink Red Bull 24-7. Yeah, pretty much. Just got to figure out a way to mainline that. It's true. The flight there, I wish I knew that the alcohol was free on the flight. Oh. <laughs> International flights, I, you can drink as much wine as you want. I didn't know that. Well, I got a different question <laughs> if you want to answer a different question, Nick. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have a great answer for that because I actually felt like in most all respects, I was pretty well prepared. Like the only things I can think of are like me like complaining <laughs> in some weird <laughs> capacity, which I don't necessarily want to do. Or I guess jet lag is the best answer, to be honest, like things that I could actually do or like just nonsense answers. Like I wish I had known what all my opponents would be playing before the tournament too. <laughs> but like That counts. I guess. <laughs> all right. Well, Jess asked how many mimosas are required for success? <laughs> if you're still able to count the number of mimosas, you haven't hit the hit. You haven't hit enough yet. <laughs> Just keep That's going. a good answer. Okay, so the real question, I'll, I'll try this one from Finn Bob. What is the downtime like when it's your first time at an MC? People always ask about the games, preparation, etc. But the fact is, you're in a foreign country with people that may mostly know each other. Uh, with you being the outsider, how does this affect the experience? And I know you have like some friends, and I think you're pretty good at making friends. But did did that hit you at all? I was very thankful, actually. This could be like a useful time to shout out some people too. I was expecting to have a little bit rougher go of like, especially the testing house where Sam Island felt more or less like I qualified and he messaged me like, don't worry about housing. We'll just add you to our plans. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> I, I love not having to plan anything. That sounds great. Yep. Sam is so, chaos. Yep. Sam's great. And so I was in the house with like 
only two people I actually knew, Sam Eilerfeld and, and Greg Michael. Um, and then a, a ton of people that I didn't know, including some that I, and then there were a couple mystery people that I was never even told. Um, but it was like Corey Burkhart, Max McVitie, Andrew Ellen Bogan and me and Alex Magelaton and Steve King. So those are the two I didn't know, but I didn't know anybody else. I had, I think I talked to Corey once. I'd never actually met Andrew Ellen Bogan and I'd never talked to Max McVitie and they all just turned out to be great people. Yeah. That's a good crew. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal. And so I was very lucky in that they were all fantastic and very accepting of me. I was a little bit like there was a moment where like we um, we got back from dinner or something and they were in like a limited meeting. And I was like, oh, do I get to go to this? Like you're they're like Skyping or discording or whatever with people from who are back in the U.S. And I'm like, do I get to sit in on this? And I'm like, yeah, come over here. And like, you can help. And I'm like, OK, cool, because I wasn't really sure. Like, what are the what are the rules for this? And they were all great at the tournament itself. You know, I didn't know a ton of the, like the pros or anybody who was there, but I still had, you know, I had uh, I had you and I had Jess and I had a few other people, and then I now had this house of people that I knew. So there were definitely still people that I could talk to, and then the cosplayers were all there supporting me, which was also fantastic because they they were just so excited to see me. So shout out nice. to Olivia and Nissa and all of them; they're all great. So the the lesson here is uh, find a friend on the inside who can. Oh, introduce yeah. you to everyone else. Yeah, I suppose that's I suppose that's the takeaway. But I mean, isn't that just like a life lesson you should have already learned or like everybody should know, which is that like networking is the most po- like important thing you can do at all times? Because that's all I learned, really. I think people will go through life and have moments like that where it's like, oh, this is really cool. But then I don't necessarily think that they stop and reevaluate and are like, Oh, this is actually really important. And a thing that I should work on doing. I mean, I don't know how true it is for like people in general, but I've always thought that networking was just the most important thing, which you're doing it right. It also also helps that I enjoy talking to people and meeting new people. But, but yeah, I mean, just like it it certainly at the very least helps with not being in a room full of magic players and feeling really awkward because you have no one to talk to. So if I hadn't, if I hadn't done that work for the last, you know, a couple of years, then I would have been sitting there not, not really sure what to do. But instead, overall, good time. Yeah, it was a fantastic experience. I would do it again. In fact, I woke up on Sunday and I was really sad and I messaged you like, I want to be playing Magic at the Pro Tour. Like, why am I not there right now? <laughs> so got to make it happen again. Uh, Sundays are tough, man. Yeah. Sundays will always be tough until <laughs> even once I make it, then I'm going to be like, oh, crap, I have to play Magic on Sunday. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, cross that bridge when you get there. Yeah, that's that's a problem for future Nick. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, Nick, you are wonderful. I'm I'm glad that you qualified. I'm glad you had a good time. I'm glad you did well. And, uh, you know, I look forward to having you queue again because it's only a matter of time, man. Yeah. Well, thank you. I hope that that's true. And I don't spend another 10 years off the pro tour. Yeah. 10 years is a long time. Like, give it give it like five years. We'll see what happens. Hopefully it won't be five years. Hopefully it'll be like Richmond. I'll, if I if I have to miss Barcelona, my my sleep schedule will thank me. But like. Richmond, standard, that's where I want to be. Fair enough. All right, get to practicing. You want to sign us out? Ooh, are there any rules for this? Can I like do however I want? Can I like ASMR this? <laughs> however you want. That's gay.
luck.